invite you to turn your attention with me to the 14th. That's kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> After months in the 13th, to the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14, that's at page 960 in your pew Bible. I uh, confess this morning that this is the chapter that has kept me for years from preaching this book of the Bible to you. Until now, I've long dreaded preaching on the topic of spiritual gift of tongue speaking, but have uh, recently found, as always, the study of God's Word pays dividends, and God is always faithful when we look to Him for the help we need to understand. Now, having said that, I will remind you that even the Apostle Peter had to acknowledge that uh, not everything in Paul was equally as clear or easily to be understood. Uh, This chapter, I think, must be in that list of scriptures with which good and devout Christians have struggled and have often, and in recent days uh, even more, especially in the last century or so, over this particular uh, chapter and this matter have disagreed. So if we struggle a little bit with some parts of Paul's letters, including the text before us, uh, well, that's okay. Uh, we find ourselves in very good company. Before we get to the reading, may I also remind you briefly of the flow of this letter, that the sense of which we may have lost since we slowed our pace to that of a snails over the last couple of months in 13. Back in chapter 12, you remember, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about spiritual gifts, and he listed there several spiritual Gifts and encourage them in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives and empowers many and various gifts, apportioning to each one individually as he wills. Paul urges them and us to use our spiritual gifts for the benefit, for the sake of the body of Christ of which we are members, and for the welfare of the church of Jesus Christ. Not leaving that theme behind, however, uh, he urges us to pursue the higher gifts, the more excellent way, which brought us into chapter 13, where we've spent many weeks on love, the greatest of all, as he calls it. Why has he, uh, why he has been at such pains to emphasize the importance of love, uber alles, over all, is, uh, self-evident in this letter, because the hallmark, or perhaps I should say better, the great blemish on the uh, Corinthian church, what has bedeviled her congregational life, has been her selfishness and the selfishness of her members, each one marked and marred so many of them in the congregation together by selfishness, and nor has that been more clearly demonstrated than in the use, or rather I should say, abuse, the abuse of spiritual gifts. Each one is trying very hard to rise above the other, and apparently the gift of tongue speaking has come to be viewed as preeminent. For whatever reason, this particular gift of all the gifts is risen to this level of other over other gifts in importance. Tongue speaking has come apparently in Corinth to become the a touchstone, the high water mark of really spiritual people 
I'm really spiritual because I speak in tongues. I'm a real Christian, you see. I'm worthy of that name. And apparently others had uh, acquiesced in that view as well. Well, chapter 13 has been Paul's corrective for the selfishness, including the matter of selfishness and with regard to spiritual gifts and tongue speaking in particular, which, by the way, has made its appearance even twice in the love chapter, you might remember. Remember that uh, he made the point early in the chapter that the speaking in the tongues of men and even of angels is nothing. He calls it, he says, it's nothing. It's nothing without love. Just a bunch of aggravating noise, he went on to say, banging gongs and clanging cymbals. That's all your tongue speaking amounts to, without love. Furthermore, he pointed out near the end of the chapter that tongues would cease, whereas love will never end. Well, now in chapter 14, he's turning more specifically to this matter of the spiritual gifts of tongues, but he's not left love behind, as we shall see when we pick up at verse 1 of chapter 14 after we pray. Father, we, we come to some things in your word that are more difficult to understand and to grasp. And uh, so we pray, Father, for understanding. We pray that you will guide us in truth, that our worship may be from beginning to end. Worship rendered, as our Lord said to that dear Samaritan woman by the well, in spirit and truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Long reading, 33 verses, 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters, utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I want you all to speak in tongues but even more, to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. That's the second time he's talked about edifying or building up the church. We'll come back to that, Lord willing, another time. But notice as we read this chapter, the premium Paul places on that one thing. Verse 6, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinctive notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, 
I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the foreigner and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, my brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made uh, to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. We begin today to tread the ground of 1 Corinthians 14. I want first to issue a couple of caveats and then make an attempt at a couple of definitions. In fact, I want to issue something of an apology right now from the start because that is all we're going to have time for this morning. Uh, A couple of caveats and a couple of definitions. I hope the Lord willing to return next week to get more into the meat of this chapter. And I I plead with you for your patience and for your perseverance through this one this morning. 
For those of you who are prone to drowsiness during the sermon, maybe somebody nearby can give you a nudge when it's finished. And if you suffer insomnia, by the way, be sure to get a CD of today's sermon. It will solve all your ills. First, the caveats. I begin with the wise counsel of our contemporary Dr. J.I. Packer. I've heard him quoted as saying this. In this area of study, uh, where undue dogmatism uh, is where undue dogmatism is unwise and spiritual sensitivity is vital. I've not seen those words in print, but it certainly sounds like something Packer would say, brilliant theologian and irenic spirit that he is, and something of an expert in this area. He recognizes that um, this particular passage is ground on which many struggles are taking place, Uh, in the church today, in Protestant Christianity, and I suspect within Roman Catholicism as well, because there is a charismatic movement afoot there also. Actually, I checked Wikipedia, since it's such a fountain of truth and accurate knowledge and information, and uh, it indicates that charismatic Christianity, which is often categorized into three separate groups, uh, namely Pentecostalism, and the charismatic movement and the neo-charismatic movement numbered over 584 million in 2011. That accounts for a quarter of the 2 billion people who name Christ as their Savior in the world. A Pew Research Center provi- uh, paper report provides the... Uh, the basis for that claim. Charismatics, you may have guessed or perhaps know from experience, take a different view of this chapter uh, from other Christians, from most other Christians that most Christians have taken throughout the centuries or even still today. But the sheer size of the number of charismatics combined with what we've just spent the last two months studying uh, on love gives us ample reason, doesn't it, to uh, treat this topic of tongues as sensitively and lovingly as we possibly can. Another caveat for us to make and to keep in mind, to uh, continue in the spirit of Peter's assessment of Paul's writings, specifically that there are some things harder to understand in his letters, we have this observation from John, the golden-mouthed preacher Chrysostom, All of us must feel uh, the force, I think, of this great 4th century church father's assertion who preached his way through this letter some 1,600 years ago that, quote, this whole passage is very obscure. But the obscurity arises from our ignorance of the facts described, which, though familiar to those to whom the apostle wrote, have ceased to occur. Well, if this passage was obscure uh, to the church fathers just a few hundred years after it was written, 
Then, uh, with almost 2,000 years separating us from the original situation, we can expect some difficulties too. And with those cow yachts in mind, I would like to venture now a couple of definitions for us. Those of you who've studied forensics and public debate, you know how important it is before you enter into the discussion to define your terms. What, what do these words mean so that everyone understands the meaning of the words we're using. I'm not entering into debate here in the pulpit, but it will help us to define two terms today. Prophecy and tongues. First, prophecy. And immediately you ask, well, why are we defining prophecy? Uh, I thought the topic du jour was tongues. Yes, but that's not the only gift that Paul has in mind here in chapter 14. In fact, before he even mentions tongues, before he mentions tongues, he emphasizes the priority of another spiritual gift of prophecy over tongues. And he'll keep that priority all through this, ver- this chapter. Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So if in the whole context of tongue-speaking, of the tongue-speaking debacle that bedeviled the Christian congregation at Corinth, Paul lays a greater emphasis on prophesying, prophesying over tongue-speaking, then we must understand what he means by prophesying. Now, at first you think, well, it's not very difficult to define prophecy and prophesying, but... um, But it can be, and as a matter of fact, it is. Many people say, many theologians and exegetes say, well, prophesying, prophecy just amounts to preaching. That's the equation. Prophesying is preaching. To prophesy means to preach. But as soon as you say that, you've you've got a problem, something of a problem, because it's doubtful that Paul meant to say that the congregation should be chock full of preachers. Now, there must be preachers of course, but who needs, who even wants a plethora of preachers, right? One of the necessary evils of this life. Then there is another way that prophecy is defined, and that is foretelling. One prophet, a prophet might say by uh, definition, we might say rather, foretells the future, and that's, that does cover a good deal of biblical prophecy, prophecy doesn't it? foretelling, telling what is yet to come. But as much, if not more, of prophecy in the Bible takes the form not so much of foretelling as forth-telling, of proclaiming God's word, not predicting the future, but telling forth God's word, applying God's word to one situation or another, to one person or another, one people or another. Isn't that exactly What's happening in verse 3, where the one prophesying is speaking to the people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, their consolation. What is more, prophecy is understandable language, even to an unbeliever. Even unbelievers can understand prophecy in their language. Even an outsider, according to verse 24, whereas tongues amount to nonsense. They're utter nonsense to a visiting stranger. They leave him, they leave him thinking as he walks away from a group of Christians that they're all nuts. That Christians are a bunch of kooks. Goofy, crazy people out of our minds. Back to that next week. 
For now, let me say this. In a, in a certain sense, when we come into the house of God, as we've done here even this morning, we all prophesy, as it were. We've all come in here, and we've already prophesied today when we sing together of the things that have been and the things that are and the things that shall be, the things that have yet to take place. We're prophesying. We're forthtelling, and we're foretelling, and we've done both to each other, even this morning, even in this house. And when we read the scripture together in one another's hearing, as we often do, and talk about it in worship and after worship with each other, why we're encouraging each other, we're edifying each other, we're building each other up, we're prophesying. There's, You're a prophet when you proclaim God's word to a needy world around you. Now think about this. When, when your neighbor or one of your acquaintances or relatives or a friend or whatever says to you, I just don't know. I, I just don't know where things are, are headed. Look at how bad things are. Look at the, the mess in Washington. Look at the world and war. Look at the famines and the suffering and all of it. I just don't understand what the future holds, where history is going, they say to you. You say to them, well, I do. <laughs> and I can tell you, I know that the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. I know that he's conquering his enemies and making them a footstool to his feet. In the future, Christ is going to come and finally defeat his enemies and, and make them a footstool to his feet, uh, finally and completely, and judge all men and receive his own to eternal life and sentence the rest to death. And so your friend turns to you and he says to you, well, what do you think you are, some kind of prophet? And you say, well, as a matter of fact, since you bring it up, <laughs> I am something of a prophet. I am bringing God's word to you. Where did you learn all these things he wants you to tell him? It's all right here. It's, it's all in my Bible. I'm telling you what the Bible has to say. Whether that up, uplifts you and or encourages you or consoles you or challenges you, convicts you, calls you to repentance and faith. That's what it means to prophesy. And the, and the fact that some of you in this room, uh, uh, the fact is many of you are particularly gifted for it. I know that because I've, I've seen you in action. Second, what do we mean, or more importantly, what does Paul mean by this uh, tongues? What precisely is the gift of tongues that has presented so much difficulty in the Corinthian context in which Paul is trying to bring into check in the church? Well, Paul doesn't supply us a technical definition here any more than he did in chapter 12. He assumes that his readers know what this means. So since, as Chrysostom put it, it is rather obscure to us, we're going to have to engage in a little bit of investigation, a little detective work. Exegesis of the Bible calls us to do that sometimes, doesn't it? Makes of us uh, something of uh, sleuths. And so we investigate Scripture, and in doing so, we apply the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Do you... So what is tongues? What is tongues elsewhere in the Bible? Well, we go to Pentecost. You remember that? 
In Acts chapter 2, it's recorded the account wherein the apostles gathered all together in one place. They heard the sound like a mighty rushing wind in the place, filled the entire house when they were sitting. Cloven tongues of fire appeared on their heads and rested on them, and, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What were those tongues? Well, it becomes evident very quickly what those tongues were. They were other languages, because the Jews had gathered there from all over, from many different nations to celebrate Pentecost, all these different speakers of all these different languages. And they were all amazed, these people were, to hear the gospel in their own language, to hear these Galileans speaking uh, the Parthian uh, in the Parthian language and whatever the Medes spoke and whatever was spoken uh, the Egyptian uh, place. They spoke that language and the Libyans and the Romans and so on, all these different languages. Tongues, the gift of tongues, according to the Bible, using Scripture to interpret Scripture is the ability to speak a different language or languages which one has never spoken or never at least taken the time to learn. And that, of course, is what makes tongues so remarkable. As any of you who has studied a different language other than your own native tongue can attest, it is very hard to learn another language. Good grief, some of us haven't apparently even learned English, not completely. But uh, it takes work. Some missionaries have spent 20 years learning the language of people to whom they've come with the gospel, but the gifts, gift of tongues is not theirs. It's, it takes a long, long time to learn Whereas the gift of tongues would give the language immediately, even if one doesn't understand that language himself. Tongues is mentioned again in chapter 10 of Acts and in Acts 19, in which it is said that those on whom the Holy Spirit came spoke in tongues. Those along with what we consider to be a spurious text in Mark 16 are all of the references to tongues in the Bible. That's all of them. That's it. All of the references to tongues right there I've, I've mentioned to you. So applying what is clear in the Bible to what is less clear, in other words, interpreting the Bible with the Bible, it seems plain to me anyway, and maybe to you, and you can study this out. You are all sensible people. It seems to me, and the same word, as a matter of fact, is used in both places, that it's referring in both to speaking a different language, one otherwise unknown to the speaker. The interpretation of tongues, then, is a separate gift of the Spirit, must be exercised in conjunction with the gift of tongues in order for it to be, for tongues, that is, to be legitimately used in the gathering of Christians, in church, that is, according to Paul here in verses 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most. Very instructive, and each in turn. Very different from my experience in tongue-speaking circles, and maybe yours as well. And let someone interpret. Back in chapter 12, that was a separate gift, you remember, the gift of interpretation given not to all, but to a few. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself. And to God. The exception 
was that the one who spoke in the tongue certainly might pray, verse 13, should pray for the power also to interpret. Now, is there any more evidence in the Bible that tongue speaking meant speaking a foreign language and not just some gibberish, some incoherent, intelligible rhapsody? Well, from this chapter in Corinthians, we know, one, that it was uttered that tongues, what was uttered in tongues were articulate sounds. They are, verses 14 through 17, the vehicle of prayer and praise and thanksgiving. They may not be intelligible or understandable to the people who are hearing them without an interpreter, but they were articulate sounds with specific meaning. Second, they were edifying and therefore must have been in some way intelligible to the speaker, according to verse 4. And third, the words spoken are a form of language, or at least are comparable to other world languages, according to Paul in verse 10. Is it, it is not that the words, the utterances are meaningless in themselves, just that the meaning is unknown to the hearer without an interpreter to interpret them. So, we've made the caveats and we've given the definitions. And if the person sitting next to you has zoned out, this will be a good time to give him a nudge. But I do have one thing just briefly to add. You may agree with me, you may agree with what you've heard today, or you may not. This matter can be very divisive, potentially, and of course is very difficult. For that reason, I want to end very briefly where we began, where Paul began in verse 1. In all of our conversation and thinking about tongues, this is the first thing. First words, verse 1, pursue love. Pursue love. The idea, the idea here, the language implies is to pursue love with perseverance. Pursue love with persistence. That's the most important thing. That's the thing. We just spent two months learning this. More important than tongue speaking, more than understanding what the Bible means by tongue speaking, is love. And don't stop. In case you wonder with what kind of persistence we must pursue love, I want you to imagine, if you will, Rebecca's beagle. Rebecca's beagle strider. Every once in a while... The door cracks just enough, and there's a rabbit in the backyard. Strider is off and running, and to watch him, to watch his legs in a streak take ground for him to fly pursuing that hare as his ears are pinned back with the wind and his mouth flapping, that's how we want to pursue love. You'll get something of the trail of what Paul is calling on us to do. No matter how we understand the rest, no matter where 1 Corinthians 14 takes us, my brothers and sisters, let us pursue love. Amen.